Indeed, Jesus did pay it all. And I pray that that payment, I pray that that work of God's redemption through Jesus Christ um, would be a work that the Holy Spirit would affect and apply to every one of our hearts. Uh, this past week, I had the joy of speaking to the Ignite Student Ministry Group uh, about the centrality of the gospel. And I challenged uh, those in audience not to assume the gospel. Not to assume the gospel. There's many facets, there are many ways in which we assume the gospel. One of them, one of the areas where Christians are often weak and fuzzy when making the gospel known is the call to repentance. Uh, we assume that experiencing God's salvation is just a matter of receiving Jesus in your heart. Now, friends, if that's what you mean by salvation, um, that is a uh, distorted understanding of responding to the gospel. When Jesus proclaimed uh, the gospel, he actually called people to repentance to turn away from their sin and to believe the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Jesus was the one who was ushering the reign of God, and through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus is the means by which people can enter into the kingdom of God. This is how the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Mark, describes what Jesus is preaching was about. He, we read in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And just for a moment, what is the gospel of God? Uh, Mark 1.15 goes on to say, and this is what Jesus was proclaiming, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. You see how the call to repentance is brought up quickly in, in Jesus' own message of the gospel. Sadly today, the call of turning to the Lord is often ignored. Or if it is mentioned at all, it is brought up in superficial or vague terms. Well, this morning, as we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, I would like for us to see from the book of 1 Samuel that in order to experience God's deliverance, in order to experience God's salvation, people need to take the path of turning to the Lord. And Samuel makes it very clear to them what that path of turning to the Lord means. So I encourage you to open God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 7. I will be reading from verse 2 to verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. And uh, you may find this passage uh, in our pew Bibles on page number 230. 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, from verse 2 to verse uh, 17. Here is God's word for us this morning. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 
And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of his Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts as we hear Father, it's a privilege to hear your word. It's a privilege to have it read in our gathering. It's a privilege to have your word proclaimed to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would speak through the preaching of your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for his glory and honor and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit among us. Amen. The path of turning to the Lord. In this passage, we see a significant change uh, taking place in the story of Israel uh, through the ministry of Samuel. In verse 2, as the, the passage that we began reading from, in verse 2 we are told that the ark of the Lord had been taken to Kiriath-Jarim 
and that it lodged there for 20 years. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, the, the story when the Lord allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken away from the land, to be taken to the Philistines, and uh, the Lord brought plagues against the Philistines, and the Philistines sent it back to Israel. Uh, and the place they sent it back to uh, was Beth-Hemeth, Beth-Shemesh. And the people of Beth-Shemesh did not uh, actually did not receive the, uh, the ark of the Lord well. They were unhappy. They began grumbling against the Lord because the Lord killed a number of the people because the people mistreated the ark of the covenant. So the people of Beth Shemesh sent the ark away from them, even though it was a Levite-dwelt uh, city. They sent it away to Kiriath-Jarim. And we're told in verse 2 that the ark of the Lord had dwelt there for 20 years. And verse 2 ends on this note. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Why is this a significant detail as the story of our chapter kicks off? Why is it mentioned that the, the people of, the, of Israel began lamenting after the Lord? Notice with me just for a second how chapter 6 ended. The people of Beth Shemesh were mourning because they had been struck with a great blow in chapter 6 verse 19. And therefore they sent the ark of the Lord away from them. It was a way of saying that the Israelites preferred not to have the ark of the Lord next to them and sent it off to a city dominated by non-Israelites, Kiriath-Jarim. But 20 years later, we find that something had changed in the hearts of the people of Israel. They began mourning after the Lord. In chapter 6, they lamented because the Lord disciplined them and killed some of them. And now in chapter 7, they began lamenting after the Lord. Even though the ark was back in their land, they realized that the Lord was not near them. To lament after the Lord was an awakening moment for Israel at this time. It's a great turning moment for all of Israel to begin lamenting after the Lord. And it is here that the story of chapter 7 picks up. Lamenting after the Lord was a step in the right direction, but not sufficient in and of itself. Missing the Lord was a good step forward. But more steps were needed to be made if their lamenting after the Lord was to be efficient and effective. So this morning, as we look at the story of what Samuel leads the people of Israel to do and act, we will see uh, three stages in the story uh, in this path of turning to the lament. Uh, point number one, if you like to take notes, Here's, here's the outline. Um, from lament to concrete repentance. Point number one, from lament to concrete repentance. The second stage we will see is from repentance to fear to freedom. From repentance to fear to freedom. And then finally, the third stage of the story, from an event to an ongoing rhythm. From an event to an ongoing rhythm. Let's look at each of these 
stages as a story and the path of turning to the Lord is unfolded for us uh, through the ministry of Samuel to the people of the Lord. Uh, Point number one, from lament to concrete repentance. Now, we have not seen Samuel since chapter 3. And we are told in verse 2 that between chapter 3 and chapter 7, about 20 years have passed. Now in chapter 7, Samuel appears again on the stage of this story. And notice what is his message about. When he appears on the stage of ministering to the people of God, what does his message contain? Samuel defines for the people what repentance means. Look at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now notice that Samuel's message is not simply a call to return to the Lord. In this text, Samuel went a step further in actually defining what true returning to the Lord means. In other words, he's saying to the people, if you are turning to the Lord, let's be clear about what that means. Uh, And according to Samuel's response, returning to the Lord is defined by three elements. The first one is turning away from idols. The first dimension of what he means to return to the Lord is to turn away from idols. Samuel says, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Uh, The Ashtaroth were the female gods that were part of the Canaanite religion. And the charge that the Israelites began worshiping foreign gods and the Ashtaroth appeared as early as Judges chapter 3. We read in Judges chapter 3 verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. That's how the book of Judges begins. Here Samuel's message to the people of God begins with a call to turn away from these foreign gods to which they began turning to as early as Judges chapter 3. In defining repentance as a turning away from idols, Samuel is getting back to the very first of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the Ten Commandments and how they started? Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. God says to his people after he took them out of, of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, God says to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Oh, friends, a returning to the Lord involves, first of all, a decision to forsake all idols. Now, today we don't have physical statues, but whatever we think of as more worthy than God in our lives is in danger of being placed on a seat above God in our lives and able to become an idol for us. Whatever our culture or society worships today can easily become an object of worship for us as well. 
we may fall into the trap of thinking that we can worship God on Sundays and worship the, the idols of our culture the rest of the week. Well, friends, Samuel clarifies that a true worship of God, a true returning to the Lord, means a turning away from the idols that we can manufacture for ourselves or the idols that our society lures us into. I wonder what are the idols that you might be tempted to worship? What are the idols that the Lord may be calling you today to turn away from? When we conduct a membership interview uh, with new prospective members, we have learned a specific question uh, to bring up as a follow-up question when people tell us about their conversion. Uh, they tell us about how they came to know the Lord and how they came to actually surrender their lives to the Lord and entrust their lives to the Lord. But one of the follow-up questions that we have found helpful to ask is this. What did you turn away from when you got saved? Because it's not just enough to say, okay, I got saved. <laughs> Great. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord. But just to get clarity, a little more clarity, what did you get saved from when you got saved? Repentance, dear friends, is not just a, a feeling of being sorry or a feeling of guilt. There has to be a clarity of, of knowing what we are turning away from. And, and Samuel makes it known to them, turn away from your idols. Second of all, returning to the Lord has a second part to it. Uh, it means a change of direction of our hearts. Samuel says, and direct your heart to the Lord. Now, friends, returning to the Lord is not just an outward behavioral change. It's not just a feeling. It certainly will involve behavioral change, but it's first of all a redirection of our hearts to the Lord. It means setting the object of our pursuit to be no longer ourselves, no longer our agendas, no longer our dreams, but to pursue the Lord. How easy it is for us to fall in the trap of minimizing our walk with God to only certain behaviors, only certain external activities. And we are tempted to think that if we just do those external things, we are fine. I'm so, so grateful and, and, and thank the Lord for Caroline's clarity in her testimony of telling us that even though she grew up in a Christian home, in, in a Christian school and around church activities, she thought that just doing those things, conforming to those external things, somehow meant that she was a Christian. And just hearing in her testimony today that that was not the case, it's helpful for us to remember that. Friends, to be a Christian involves a change of heart, a change at the, at the level of our hearts, of direction, turning away from idols, but turning to the Lord. Your heart determines what you pursue, what you're passionate about, what is really important to you, what you put your hopes in, and therefore a turning to the Lord involves a turning of direction of the heart. But thirdly, Samuel says that a turning to the Lord also in, involves a change of service. Samuel says to the people, and serve him only. When people hear that returning to the Lord involves a change of direction of our hearts, 
But there's another trap we must be aware of. And that is reducing repentance to merely an emotional experience. Certainly, our true turning to the Lord will engage our affections. If our affections are not engaged and changed towards the Lord, something is off track. Um, Turning to the Lord, though, involves more than just a bubbly feeling, a good feeling about the Lord. Turning to the Lord is shown through what or whom we serve. And Samuel makes it clear that a true change of heart leads to a service to the Lord that is exclusive to the Lord. Friends, serving the Lord exclusively does not mean that everything we do is church activities. But it does mean that we seek to do everything as if it is a service to the Lord, as it is unto the Lord. Whether it's a job that you have and that you hate, or a leisure or an entertainment that you enjoy, or simply doing the household responsibilities or cleaning up your apartment so that your roommates don't have to smell your stinky stuff. Um, You can do all things as unto the Lord, as a service to the Lord. Can you see the activities that you are engaged in throughout the week, Monday through Saturday? Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. Can you see those activities as a means of serving the Lord? Or do you carry out those activities out of motivations for selfish or self-serving or self-promoting reasons? At the end of the day, we all serve something. Either, Either serve ourselves or we're called to serve the Lord, our Creator. Samuel helped the Israelites to realize that lamenting after the Lord must lead to concrete steps of repentance, a turning away from idols, a turning of the heart toward God, and an exclusive service to God. These are concrete manifestations of a true repentance. Without these, lamenting after the Lord is just having an emotional high or low, whichever way you want to call it. And notice the response of the people to Samuel's message. Look at verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Oh, friends, how encouraging. How encouraging this verse is to hear that the people respond right away by putting away their false gods and began serving the Lord exclusively. Friends, tears alone are not sufficient proof that someone is turning to the Lord. What proves someone's repentance is the concrete actions that show a change of what one worships, what one pursues, what objectives one serves. This is why when someone expresses repentance, even here in our congregation, it is wise for us to allow for some time to see that repentance in concrete actions. Samuel, when he hears the response of the people, he gathers a national gathering to formalize the, national, the, na- the nation's repentance to the Lord. They want to have a, a public moment when they publicly repent to the Lord. And notice what happens in verse 6. So they gathered at Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. Do you know what they do at Mitzvah? 
Why do they gather to this place? They gather to corporately fast. Did you notice that they gathered? They poured out water and they, and they, they drew out water and they poured it out. That means they drew the water, but they did not drink it. It's a way of saying they fasted both from water and from food. As they gathered at Mitzvah, it was a, a public gathering of fasting. And then it was a public gathering of confessing sin. This is one of the several events in, in the Bible where we see the public and corporate confession of sin. The Israelites acknowledge and declare that in pursuing foreign gods, they have sinned against the Lord. Oh, friends, this, this happens all the time when we pursue our idols and our gods. Other than the Lord, we sin against the Lord. Here, an entire gathering takes the responsibility to confess publicly their sin before God. Friends, this is why we also have in the Sunday morning services often, not always, but often, we have a special, a dedicated prayer time for confessing sins together. We come and acknowledge and agree with God against our sin, taking God's side against our sin. And in acknowledging that we have sinned, we plead with God for mercy and forgiveness. If in chapter 4, Israel sought to have victory over the Philistines by bringing the ark of the Lord into the battle, in chapter 7, Samuel promises them victory by bringing the people back to God. And this is a key difference between the battles of chapter 4 and the battles of chapter 7. The point of Samuel's ministry is to tell God's people that their freedom from their enemies comes not through their attempts to manipulate God as they tried to in chapter 4, but it, it comes only through repentance and a true turning to the Lord. Friends, repentance is a critical part of our walk with God because it is the means by which we get reconciled to a holy God who alone is able to carry all our battles and to bring us deliverance. Sadly, though, just like the Israelites of chapter 4, all too often we want to experience God's deliverance and victory while at the same time holding on to our idols and sin. Samuel 7 tells us, that in order to experience God's deliverance, we must turn back to the Lord in concrete ways. So we can conclude this first scene of lamenting for the Lord by reminding us that lamenting for the Lord requires concrete steps of repentance. This is the first point that Samuel teaches. But there's a second, second stage in this battle, second stage in this story of, of, of deliverance and and. and uh, turning to the Lord. And that stage is from repentance to fear to freedom. As the story of chapter 7 unfolds, we find out that repentance can bring a new set of troubles. Look at verses 8 through 10. When the Philistines hear that the Israelites gathered at Mitzpah, they were not happy about it. Perhaps they thought that they were planning to revolt against the Philistines. We don't know. But it's clear that their gathering at Mitzvah caused the Philistines to initiate an immediate attack on the Israelites. Now imagine what could have gone on in the minds of the Israelites. While they're repenting and turning to the Lord, 
they see a new threat from the Philistines. Now, they could have revolted against Samuel and tried to put him out of office. After all, Samuel promised them and said, hey, if you're turning away from your idols and to the Lord, the Lord, uh, the Lord will, will rescue you from the Philistines. But now they have a new crisis from the very enemies that they were promised deliverance from. And notice how they respond. They respond with fear. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now on first impression, you might say, well, that doesn't look like much faith, does it? Well, friends, this would be an inaccurate conclusion. Notice what else they do in the midst of their fears and panic. In the midst of their fears, they're turning to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Notice what they're doing in the midst of their fears. They're turning to the Lord in prayer. And they show why they are turning to the Lord in prayer. Because they want to rely on the Lord to save them from their enemies. And this is a helpful point. Faith does not always mean the opposite of fear. Or the absence of fear. Often it is in the midst of fear that actually faith leads us to turn to the Lord. Situations may arise in our lives in which the first response is, Fear, panic. What is important to consider, though, is what we choose to do in the midst of that fear. Do we ignore God and just think of some human solutions? If we do think of God, do we try to manipulate Him as the Israelites have done in, in chapter 4? What they do here in chapter 7 is a model of what we can do in the midst of fear. In the midst of their fears, they turn to the simple act of praying to the Lord. Of actually being at the mercy of God. They will learn that such simple reliance on the Lord is sufficient. Friends, this is one of the reasons why a few years ago we began an evening service uh, in our congregation on Sunday nights. Uh, to have a corporate time in which we as a church devote ourselves on a regular pattern, a regular basis, to devote ourselves to prayer, seeking the Lord regularly for various aspects, for various needs, for the needs of the world, for the needs of our nation, for the needs of our city, for the needs of this congregation, and for the needs of various members in our church. I wish that the Lord would impress upon more of us to gather, to consider gathering even on Sunday nights, uh, for our prayer service. The people of the Lord in this chapter recognize that in the midst of their fears, they can do something very simple, and that is turn to the Lord in prayer and depend upon His mercy. Samuel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered. Look at verse 9. Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, how did the Lord answer? We see, the, we see the answer of the Lord in verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered 
with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. What was God's answer? Thunders from heaven against the adversaries of God's people. Now, the appearance of thunders from heaven uh, showed up earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. When Hannah prayed that glorious prayer in chapter 2, towards the end of her song of praise or, or prayer of praise, she said the following words in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And here we are, five chapters later, God shows that what he inspired Hannah to pray earlier, 20 years plus earlier, God is now doing. How powerful of God to inspire Anna to sing that prayer chapter, five chapters earlier, 20 years earlier. And now how powerful of God to show his, his incredible ability to move the thunders, to direct them, to program them, to hit at the right time in the right place so that the Israelites would not be, be afraid and confused, but the Philistines would be. How amazing of God to work that out. Friends, the word of the Lord does not fail. God is able to control thunders in heaven and to determine when and where they should take place. Friends, humans could never control that. But God can. God shows His power by controlling the forces of heaven to bring about a miraculous deliverance for His people. This is the mighty power of God who intervened to bring a great redemption for His people when His people simply asked of the Lord. Simply asked. Oh, friends, I wonder what keeps you away from asking of the Lord to save you. I wonder what keeps you away from asking of the Lord to bring deliverance. In this chapter, we see the outcome. Uh, the Philistines were defeated before Israel. We read in verse 10 and 11. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. God's people have relied on the Lord for deliverance after they have turned away from their idols, after they have turned away from pursuing their own agendas, after they, they turned to the Lord, they asked of the Lord. In this chapter, it's important to remember what took place before they prayed. They had turned away from their idols. They have repented before the Lord. Sometimes we may be tempted to just pray and ask of God, without actually wanting to reform our lives, without wanting to turn away from our, our idols. And such praying, dear friends, will not work. Samuel set, sets up a stone of remembrance, and he calls it Ebenezer. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up be between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. This is a word that we have sung earlier in the song, uh, Come Thou Fount of every blessing. The word Ebenezer means till now the Lord has helped us. But, there's a but, and there's an important but. If you've been with us through this book so far, if you've been with us when we preach through chapter 4 and then chapter 5, 
you remember, perhaps, that the name Ebenezer showed up in those chapters. They were the chapters. They were Ebenezer was the place where the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites took place when God defeated the Israelites and killed 34,000. In chapter 5, Ebenezer is a place from which the Philistines come to pick up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and take it to, to their land. In other words, if you've been with us in this book, the name Ebenezer actually showed up and was associated with the defeat of God's people. They were, it was associated with tragic loss, with shameful capturing. But now, Samuel chooses to put this name and to associate it with this victory that God has worked for his people. Now the name that used to be associated with deep brokenness and defeat takes on a new meaning. That meaning is that up until now the Lord has intervened and come to help his people. What a restoration. What a redemption of what has been broken. Friends, God specializes in taking that which has been broken and showing his power. If we take the path of turning to the Lord. Friends, there is an even greater, more miraculous redemption than the, the thunder from heaven that God had, had shown to the Israelites in 1 Samuel 7. Centuries later, after this event took place, God sent another messenger from heaven. It was not a thunder. It was His only Son, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven, became incarnate, lived a perfect life, was sentenced to death on a cross as a means of punishment for the rebellion of God's people and for the rebellion of all those who would turn to the Lord. Three days later, the Son of God was raised from the dead, proving that indeed He had paid in full. He had paid it all so that all those who would repent and trust in Christ would be granted forgiveness of their sins and would be re receiving the restoration that God promised to work and give to all those who turn to the Lord. Oh, friends, today, if you have never cried out to God to save you, call on His name. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The greatest enemy from which we must be redeemed is sin. And the effects of sin are death and eternal damnation. God sent His Son from heaven to bring us redemption and salvation from sin, death, and eternal damnation. The story of 1 Samuel 7 points us to God's power to bring about redemption when His people have been left with nowhere to turn to but the Lord and ask of Him. And the Lord responded. So we have seen in the second stage from repentance to fear to freedom. But now there's a third point, a final point, And this one will be a lot shorter than the previous two points. And the final point is from an event to an ongoing rhythm of the word. From an event to an ongoing rhythm of the word. 
this story of the great deliverance that God executed in chapter 7 ends on a surprising note with some details that I must tell you, I was very tempted to just brush off. Sort of like, let they, let they just sort of stand there in conclusion to the story. They don't add much to this great story of redemption, do they? Oh, friends, I must confess I was proven wrong in studying through this chapter and wondering what's going on. Why are these last few verses, verses 15 through 17, at the end of the story of great redemption? There's something important for us to learn. Listen to these verses. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Here we are told that after the great breakthrough, the great revival that happened at Mitzpah, Samuel's ministry was characterized by an unglamorous ministry of bringing the Word of God to different parts of the land, and he did it in a routine rhythm, in a routine manner. Year after year, he would be in four different parts of the land, bringing God's Word to his people and helping them realign their lives to the Word of God. Not just one time at mitzvah, but continuing to tell them what was right and wrong in God's sight in their lives. Friends, doing this year after year in a routine way seems like an unglamorous ministry, doesn't it? We would all prefer to have the mitzvah-like events when God comes through in a moving way, changing and, do, and, and using thunders and killing the Philistines But it's important to realize that most of Samuel's ministry was the normal, uneventful ministry of bringing the people of God the Word of God. And that part was not very glamorous. The new commitment that the nation made before the Lord at Mitzpah to turn away from their idols and to serve God exclusively is not just a one-time deal. It requires the ongoing ministry of the Word to continue to impress and to model to God's people what that life of exclusive service to the Lord looks like. So God's people needed the regular, we might say almost routine looking like ministry of the Word of God. I prefer to call it rhythm. The regular rhythm of the ministry of the Word of God. And Samuel developed a rhythm of bringing God's Word regularly to God's people. It was a regular means of grace, of gathering with God's people to instruct them year after year. This rhythm of hearing God's word regularly is not glamorous, friends, but it is what is necessary if the revival that happens at Mitzpah was to have long-lasting effects in the lives of the people. Friends, consider the fact that so many of us would would love to just always have a Mitzpah-like effect in our lives. But the Christian life, the life of following the Lord, is not just about having mitzvah-like renewals and mitzvah-like revivals. It's also the ministry of simply doing the rhythm 
of hearing the Word of God, conforming our lives year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day to the Word of the Lord. Ask yourself, are you disconsidering or ignoring the regular rhythm that God has set for His people to be sustained by God's grace? Consider the fact that God calls us to gather regularly with one another, to hear the Word of God preached week after week, to encourage one another as we gather, to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. And the weekly gatherings of God's people is one of the means of grace that God uses to sustain His people in the call to turn away from idols, to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and exclusively. I was so encouraged this week when uh, Pastor Taylor reached out to uh, Julie Coyle, one of the members in our church who's not able to be with us on a regular basis because of her health. But Julie mentioned how she listens regularly to the sermons online here. She wants to be under the regular preaching of the Word of God here in this church, even though her health is not allowing her to be here with us present. There are times when illness or other reasons uh, beyond our control cause us to miss being present. I want to encourage you that even in such times, consider listening to what was preached uh, on, on the Sundays that you missed church. Train and cultivate your soul to be exposed to the regular rhythm of God's Word. Friends, I wonder what it means to you when you hear the phrase, turning to the Lord. Do you examine yourself to make sure that there's more than just an emotional experience of lament, but that there's actual, actual concrete steps of repentance? When a crisis hits, do you cry out to the Lord in the midst of your fears? Do you appreciate and commit to the regular rhythms of exposing yourself to the Word of God? The path of true turning to the Lord is a path of true freedom. A summary of what we learn about repentance from this text is that repentance is a safer route than ignoring God or trying to manipulate God. Repentance is a safer route. Repentance may bring you crises. Don't be surprised by that. But the Lord will ultimately bring a lasting deliverance. Uh, and third part, repentance is not just a one-time event. But it turns to a lifelong journey of submitting to the Word of God, seeking to serve Him exclusively all the days of our lives. Friends, God has acted a wonderful redemption story in the, in the events of 1 Samuel 7 to show us that when people turn to Him, He is worthy to be trusted. Friends, God has shown us an even greater redemption in sending us Jesus Christ to teach us and tell us that when we turn to the Lord, truly, the Lord will not push us back. The Lord will receive us. The Lord will bring us in. Oh, how I pray that we would be a people who would be turning to the Lord, not just once, but regularly, as a regular rhythm in our lives, in our walks with the Lord. Let's pray.